I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, where we explore the ways music makes our lives better. I have two guests joining me today from Portland, Oregon. Dr. Dennis Plies is a professional classical and jazz musician and teacher. He was a musical prodigy from early childhood and was a professor of music at Warner Pacific University for over 35 years. Dr. Leary Sherman is a professor of neuroscience at the Oregon Health and Science University. He's been a pianist since age four and has published widely on brain development, aging, and disease, and has given lectures on music and the brain throughout the world. Together, these two wrote a book published earlier this year called Every Brain Needs Music, The Neuroscience of Making and Listening to Music. Welcome to Enhanced Life with Music, Dennis and Larry. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Both of you, you cover so much ground in your book. I love the book, as I told you before we hit record. Love the book. I highly recommend it. You cover some heavy topics involving neuroscience and pedagogical techniques. And somehow you managed to do it in an engaging way and with humor. (laughs) You say in your book that you hope to offer readers unique insights into music, the art of teaching, learning, and creativity. And you also say you hope that this book shows why you should never be afraid to have meaningful conversations with someone when you're standing naked in a locker room at six o'clock in the morning. (laughs) So tell us a story about how you two met and how this book came to be. Well, I mean, you you just summarized it pretty well. Huh? <laughs> um, so, uh, listeners Dennis, might need a little bit of explanation on that yeah. one. <laughs> well, so it's funny. Dennis and I uh, work out at the same gym. We are both early morning people, and uh, he does weightlifting and other things. And I play racquetball with some racquetball partners. And um, one more, I hadn't really spoken to Dennis before this one particular morning, and uh, I'd seen him around. Uh, he probably has seen me around. But uh, one morning I uh, was talking to my racquetball partner and it happened to be the morning after I had just given one of my music and the brain talks in town and he was asking me how it went and uh, I was talking about it and Dennis chimed in and said, did you, did you say that you, you give talks about music and the brain? And I said, yeah, yeah. He says, ah, you know what? I, I've been to your talks. I, I just didn't recognize you without any clothes on. So <laughs> and that's. And that led to um, lots of conversations uh, over the years about music and philosophy and history and all sorts of topics. Um, and so that's that's how we met. And um, uh, Dennis, I ca- came to learn was uh, had been a professor was a professor then at uh, Warner Pacific University here, professor of music, and invited me to give the talk at his university. And our friendship just really took off from there. I think. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Dennis, I don't know what your your perception was of that, but well, I learned so much and wanted uh, three hundred other people to learn from your lecture on music and the brain. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was all positive. So that's a little bit about how you two met. Tell us how the book came to be. So with Larry doing these music and the brain talks regularly and all over the place, and they're well attended. He was encouraged to the extent that he was is encouraged to make it a book and that's when he invited me to consider that and it took me over uh one second to (laughs) decide to say yes i was uh, privileged and elated and uh it turned out in a perfect timing with retirement coming so we've been 
in a mutual accord for these six years in total time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the b- book was accepted uh, over a year ago. Yeah. So, I mean, a friend of mine who used to work with Simon and Schuster and is an editor um, had been pestering me to write a book about these talks that I give for for years, and I just realized that you know there there are so many books out to, about the neuroscience and music out there. I just didn't feel like I would be adding that much new. Um, but then when I you know thought about it, I thought you know having someone be a co-author who was actually a professional musician and a professional teacher of music, a professor of music would add a whole new dimension. And then when Dennis and I started talking about it, we realized maybe we should even have another set of voices in there, which is voices from a survey that we put out to, you know, a hundred people who included professional musicians and composers and music lovers um, and so forth. And just asking them these very pointed questions about what they think their brain is doing when they engage in music in various different ways. And that, Mm -hmm. that turned out to be, I think, a brilliant approach. Um, I think that was Dennis's suggestion that we try doing that. Mm. But the the questionnaire was was really helpful, and we have an appendix in the book which summarizes all those questions and and all the different answers. And I think that yeah. was that was really something that helped to drive the process. Yes. Wonderful. Well, as I mentioned, there's a lot of content in the book, but you do a great job of making it accessible and engaging for those of us who are not neuroscientists. And I'm a musician, but I would I, I felt that the the music teacher content was also very accessible for people who weren't necessarily professional musicians. Tell us a little bit about who the book is for, because I think it's a pretty broad audience of, of who can really glean a lot from the book. Well, I think that's something that also evolved as we were writing it, because um, the talks I gave were generally to audiences of people who were not necessarily scientists, but people who had a lot of curiosity about science, and then also who happened to just also be interested in music. And then I think as we were writing this, Dennis and I realized that um, this could really be for a broad audience, but really especially people who love music uh, and want to engage in music and want to understand what's happening when they engage in music, but also how that information might help them um, be better about how they engage in music, be it composing, be it practicing, be it performing, or or even just listening. Um, And so I think we really thought this was going to be a great book for a broad, broad audience. Um, And then on top of that, we realized that as the content was, was coming together, it would probably be a great introductory textbook as well for for classes, for example, for music therapy folks. And so that, I think the, there's a lot of different ways you can use the book. Yeah, I mean, for anyone who loves music, anyone who wants to understand a little bit more about how it is we make music, how to teach, how to learn, how to perform, how to listen. And I think you point out in the book too, that a lot of the principles and concepts that are presented really can apply in general to the how we teach process or how we learn in general, and and also just understanding that underlying nature of creativity, which is is pretty Mm. cool. The book is, I love this, divided into eight movements. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So usually with guests, I have a list of questions that I want to ask them. With your book, I just love the content of it so much and loved how it was organized into these eight movements. I just was hoping that we could go through and have you just sort of give listeners a little bit of a taste and an explanation of what is covered in these eight movements. So starting with the first one, the first one is 
what is music and why does it exist? And I love one of the questions, maybe the question that you open this section with, where you say, if an extraterrestrial alien landed in your backyard and asked you to describe music using words, what would you say? And I was like, oh my goodness, that would be a tough one to answer. But tell us just a little bit about this movement and what is addressed in this movement in the book. Yeah, so this movement is really trying to let people understand some basic things as a premise for the rest of the book, really. Um, you know, why do we, why do, why do humans have music? How do they use it? It sort of also introduces the basic concepts of how music really can be thought of as changes in air molecules along with other sounds, obviously, but very special properties in these air molecules floating through space and entering our ears and turning on very specific sets of nerve cells, uh, these neurons that uh, let the rest of the brain know that music is coming. And that is kind of a, to whet the appetite of, of the reader, I think, to let them know that you know the brain really does engage in music in very special ways. And then beyond that, we, we really get into these bigger philosophical questions about how music has evolved with humanity. Mm-hmm. The notion that it gave us you know, some sort of advantage that led to its existence and continued existence. And the idea that music could be something that brings communities together, that really strengthens uh, social bonding, but also how it could be used in various different ways. And one of the, the ways we mentioned is, is it was used in the Underground Railroad, for example, as a way to give instructions to people who are trying to escape slavery. Mm-hmm. And so I think it really sets the stage for why, we, why music exists and why we as humans engage in it so much. Well, you mentioned when you mentioned the possibility of using this as sort of a foundational textbook for people going into music programs, whether it's music therapy or something else, I could see this chapter being really helpful for that, too, because you talk about the, the four major lobes of the brain and how music can be involved in strengthening synapses and overlapping brain circuits and things like that. And I would think that that would be hugely helpful for people who are going into music therapy and also other music related programs, too. Yeah. And, and the fact that it has been used that way, music has been used therapeutically, I think, and we give a few examples of that, just tells you that it's doing something a little different than language. It's doing something a little different than, than other forms of, of sound. And so that's, that to me is really exciting. Mm-hmm. So the second movement talks about how the human brain creates music. It talks about how composing and improvising are very distinct creative processes. Tell us anything else that you want listeners to know about some of the material that's covered in this second movement. I'd love for people to realize that in in composing, you're doing a lot of thinking and decision making, and you can edit. Uh, In improvising, you have to have a background, vocabulary, and lots of preparation but then you let loose and you actually are supposed to not think. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a very distinct activation and deactivation of certain brain networks that happens depending on if you're composing or improvising. Right. And that's, and that was kind of a remarkably interesting thing for me to see as a neuroscientist is that in the state of composing, when you're doing all this planning and you're doing all this, you're really working within a framework uh, to, to try to achieve something, your brain may be doing one thing, but when you're just letting go, as Dennis mentions, uh, your brain is actually deactivating networks. It's almost like it's allowing you to color outside the box. Mm. It's allowing you to break rules so that you can create something really different. And I think that's just 
was fascinating. And also just the idea that it's not just individual brain areas, but networks of brain areas that are being turned mm. off or on uh, to allow you to kind of free yourself up to, to do this, this activity. Um, and I think the, the un- other interesting aspect of that was that, you know, it may, it may not be the same for uh, every person, but there's a lot of commonality with regards to the circuitry. And it may not even be the same for every genre of music. But again, there's, there's things that are happening in, in general with regards to areas that become turned on in the brain and areas that get turned off to let you, let mm. you do that. Yeah. And there was that section that's the classical brain versus the jazz brain. (laughs) That would, I think, be really intriguing, especially for faculty members to read, you know, and kind of contrast and compare their own brains to their colleagues' brains, depending Uh on if they're more classical or jazz focused. Yeah. And and in retrospect, I think the way we wrote that was based on the data that that we had out there, because we were really focusing on studies that looked at classical music versus jazz but you could probably say the same thing about rap or hip hop or mm. country music versus electronic music. I mean, all, all these different genres, there are differences and the brain does react differently to them. Mm. Um, and it's not just based on what you like either. There's, there are different th- things happening in terms of what those sounds are creating in, in the, the circuitry of our brain. Huh. This is a quick break to tell you about Lipson, the service that I use to host my podcast. I chose Lipson when I started Enhanced Life with Music in 2019 because I wanted a provider who had been in the space since the beginning, knew what they were doing, and wouldn't be throwing any wrenches into what I already knew would be a learning curve for me as a new podcaster. I wanted to know that my host would be dependable and make my podcasting experience as smooth as possible for me and for my listeners. I have never looked back. Lipson has great communication about industry changes and new publishing outlets available, as well as fast, clear customer support whenever I have a question. Lipson is offering up to two months of free podcasting service to enhance Life with Music listeners using the promo code ENHANCE. Just click the link in the show notes to bring your podcast to life and have your voice heard on any and all podcast directories, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Again, just click on the promo code ENHANCE in the show notes to bring your podcast to life and get up to two months of free podcasting service with Lipson. Well, the next three movements, uh, movement three, four, and five are related to how to practice. And as a former music teacher, I really enjoyed these chapters and found them really fascinating. And it, it kind of brought me back to years ago, much earlier in my teaching career, there was a student's parent who contacted me and her her son was old enough that she wanted to be sort of hands off with his piano lesson mm-hmm. experience. She kind of wanted him to be independent and take this on by himself. But she contacted me once she, and she said, you know, at your next lesson with him, could you explain a little bit more to him how to practice? Like, I don't think mm-hmm. he exactly knows how to practice. And I remember her saying that. I remember thinking, wow, like, how can you not know how to practice? But mm-hmm. then the more I thought about it, I thought, I guess that like, that's a great question. And if he's having that uncertainty and that, um, you know, questioning and hesitation, I'm sure a bunch of other students are. And so at his next lesson, we kind of 
I went through the assignments with them and really broke it down. Like, this is what I mean. This is exactly what I want you to do. And he was kind of like, oh, oh, okay. And I thought, oh my goodness, how could I have <laughs> just, ass- you know, assumed he knew that? And obviously he didn't. And then I had these conversations with other students at their lessons and said, okay, this is what I want you to do. And then I said, do you know what I mean by that? Do you want, or do you want me to explain what I mean with how to practice this? And their face kind of lit up and they're like, yeah, can you explain that? And I was like, oh my goodness, Uh. (laughs) I have totally missed this, you know? So it was really fun to read these three movements on how to practice. Uh, But tell us, tell us a little bit about what's included in these chapters. And what you just mentioned has to do with the relationship of the teacher and the student and that, Mm. that the student opened up and you found out then something you didn't realize, but that relationship is so vital. That's, uh, really a lot of in the uh, first movement of the three that are de- dealing with practicing. And then what's going on in the brain when, when we are practicing and then the effects of practicing music on, on the brain specifically. I think one of the things I loved about writing these three chapters with Dennis is just hearing his experiences with different people. And, and we, we recount some of those stories in the book yeah. um, and what worked for some people didn't work for others. Yeah. And then breaking that down and realizing uh, that there's so much data out there about people with specific personality traits. I mean, there's this idea of grit, for example, which, you know, it's, it's a cool idea. The idea that you can, you know, have perseverance, stick to it, but also mm-hmm. combined with motivation and these other aspects of your personality that really help you succeed when you do something like learn to play an instrument. And then we break that down even further. I think it's the fifth movement where we really show what your brain is doing in the context of practice. I mean, you're making monumental changes to the structure of your brain when you're learning to play a new instrument. It's, it's pretty cool. I mean, you're adding, you're adding cells, you're adding uh, structure to cells that allow for high speed connectivity. Um, You're changing memory, you're changing all sorts of things. And you realize the demand I mean, I think we, we, we walk in that chapter through just the idea of reading a note on a page uh, <laughs> and what the brain is doing to play that single note. Um, yes, right. And you realize that's happening in picoseconds, right? So, But just that demand and what you have to do to get to that point to play it well, for me, I think that was a, lot, a joy to, to write because I learned so much just interacting with Dennis. And again, going back to our, our respondents of our survey and, and hearing their input on what they think about and do when they practice and what, what is success to them, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Agree. And I, I love too some of those stories that you, as you mentioned, you told about Dennis and his students and how some of them responded in different ways to the lessons. And you mentioned how the brain is changing so much as we're learning music and learning to play a musical instrument. But then there's also so many ways that those skills translate to everyday life, whether it's, mm analytical thinking skills or just an expanded outlook more. You mentioned one student found that he really found his entertainment choices became more, Hmm. he he gravitated toward more intellectually challenging entertainment. Uh Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just felt like his critical thinking skills changed Mm -hmm. and yeah, had more depth and complexity in Mm -hmm. his outlook on life. Um, Mm -hmm. He felt more well-rounded, more complete, so that was really neat. I really liked too how you talked about the one student that um, ended up quitting 
And it was, it was a person who just found things typically 99% of the time came very easily to him and learning to play a musical instrument was an exception to that rule. And he just wasn't used to feeling that Mm -hmm. frustration Mm -hmm. and um, just kind of gave it up. He was kind of shocked. Well, you were shocked. I think that he mm-hmm. suddenly quit because it seemed to be going fine to you, but mm-hmm. he just wasn't used to having that level of frustration. He was used mm-hmm. to think, things coming so easily. And that reminded me, I had twin boys who took piano lessons from me at one time and they would get so frustrated. And from mm-hmm. again, from my perspective, I thought felt they were doing great, but they would get so frustrated and I didn't necessarily see it, but the mom told me, She's like, I, this is the reason I'm keeping them in piano lessons is they're so smart. Everything comes so easily to Mm. them. They don't have to develop that grit Mm -hmm. that Larry was mentioning. They don't have to develop frustration tolerance Mm. ever, except Mm -hmm. for piano. Mm -hmm. It's like, that just doesn't come as easy. And they get to experience what most of us experience regularly. And it's (laughs) so great for them. She's Mm like, I've never seen them get so frustrated, but they have to figure it out and work through it. And again, I didn't see that at lessons. They were always very poised and polite mm-hmm. and, and everything. But I thought that was really insightful on the mother's part to recognize that and recognize the value in keeping them in it. Mm-hmm. Anything else that you want to mention about these movements? Well, I think once you have practiced, it's time to perform. <laughs> and that's a whole different event for the brain. And for the experiences as you are affected by the audience and you're affected if you're uh, performing with others, that you're affected by the others. And Larry gets into the brain on that part. Yeah. yeah I mean, so is, is that the next movement that you're talking about? How yeah, yeah that's, performs uh, that's music? The sixth, the sure. movement. Yeah. Um, so we, we spend three movements working on practice and that's about right. <laughs> we should, we should give about that much time to practice. And then this one chapter on, on performance. And I, some of these things make sense if you just think about them for a minute. It's like what you're doing when performing is uh, based on all that practice that you did. But what you're doing is really quite different because you're also, if you're performing for people, for example, uh, it's a matter of all the brains in the room, right? There's your brain at the piano or the trumpet or the saxophone or whatever you're playing, or you're, even if you're a vocalist, right? And then you might have to think about what's, how is your brain being affected by the brains that are listening to you? Yeah. What are they doing? How are they responding to you? Are they are they fidgeting? Are they um, moving around and crumpling paper? Are they getting up and leaving? You know, uh-huh. or are they clapping their hands with you? And those are all going to affect how you play. So it's it's what you're doing when you're practicing is so different from what you're doing when you're performing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the things in the room with you and the people in the room with you are going to affect your play as well because it's not yes. the same space. It's not the same. What your brain is doing is really quite different. Yeah, I love how you point that out. And stage fright can play into how our brains respond when we're performing versus practicing. You talk about that. That that was something that was really surprising to me when I spoke to several professional musicians, including um, an opera singer who is quite accomplished as a performer. Um, I was surprised how many people were taking beta blockers and other uh, medications to calm themselves enough to get over their stage fright, right? Uh-huh. Um, and, and that, you know, when you think about that, I, I'm, it makes some sense. I mean, you know, getting up in front of, you know, even 20 people can be daunting. I imagine getting up in front of a few thousand people is even more daunting. And I, I feel it sometimes, you know, I, 
I'm a ham. I, I, I ham it up when I get on stage, but, but you know, there's my, my heart rate definitely goes up when I'm about to play piano and I'll never forget giving this talk one time, not knowing that I was going to be doing it at a large hall in Cleveland, Ohio called Severance Hall, which is <laughs> one of the foremost, you know, concert halls in the country. Wow. And I get to sit down and give my talk at, uh, sitting at a piano that's been played by some of the top pianists in the world mm-hmm. at this, in front of this audience. And, you know, it was nerve wracking. Uh-huh. I'm a scientist. I'm not a musician. Uh, my, my music part would be something that, you know, is not something I do professionally. And so to, to get over that fear, you know, you have to mm-hmm. really do, do something with your, with your, with yourself to move on because that's not something you're dealing with when you're practicing. Sure. Well, and you point out in that chapter too, about how, how those air molecules move and vibrate in the air uh, are affected by the hall that you're in, whether it's mm. carpeted, what kind of wall coverings there are, the acoustics of the space, how many people are in the room. Um, and those, again, are things that are beyond our control and are different than when we're practicing. We're typically not practicing in the room where we're performing. Mm. And even if we are, there's different numbers of bodies, which can affect temperature and humidity and all of those things. So that's something that is really intriguing to read your description of that too. And that movement. Yeah. You've got to adapt to all of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not something yeah. you think about when you're practicing in, in your mm-hmm. favorite practice space. Yeah. So movement seven and eight, how your brain listens to music and comes to like or dislike different types of music. Talk to us about these two movements. Yeah, so the the listening part, it's amazing when you think about all the things we have to do so quickly. Um, I mentioned earlier, and we talked about it initially in the first movement, that you know once these air molecules enter our ears, they stimulate these cells uh, in the ear the apparatus of the ear that are then sent to this part of the brain called the auditory cortex. And what's remarkable is that there are cells in the auditory cortex that respond to every sound there is, but light up. There are some cells that only light up apparently in response to what they perceive as music. And from there, these cells are projected to all these different places in the brain, which involve memory, which involve emotion, which involve the ability to take those sounds and compute them into rhythms timbre, all the other aspects of, of sound and music, and then putting it together and, and letting you respond to it. If there's a nice beat, you might uh, induce some toe tapping. If there's a beautiful rhythm that uh, really affects you, it might drive you to tears or might make you smile. Um, so there's all these things that are happening so quickly when we, when we just listen to music. Some of the highlights from these movements for me were, were you talk about eight different benefits of feeling sadness when listening to sad music. And I, I, I just loved that. We, I actually have had an episode on, um, I think it was called Hurt So Good. And it's like, why do we love listening to sad music? And what are the benefits? But I love the eight benefits that you share about feeling sadness when listening to sad music. You also talk about the the cannabinoid receptors that are involved when we like something, whether it's an experience of food um, and how music can engage those same regions in the reward network of our brains. Uh, endocannabinoids. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Well, it's the stuff that you, uh, turns on your brain when you smoke weed. <laughs> so, yeah. Which uh, just became legal in Minnesota, by the way. <laughs> that's le- it's been legal here in Oregon for a while. Um, yeah. <laughs> but 
But uh, yeah, it's actually multiple systems because actually the first the first part of that system is actually the opioid opioid receptor system, which of course gets turned on by things like opium. But if you like something that you're experiencing, uh, it tends to, to trigger this response for this, these so-called mu opioid receptors. And if you like something enough, it drives you to have this reward signaling involving dopamine, uh, a neurotransmitter in our brains, and that causes you to want that thing. So you hear a song and you really like it, that drives you to want to hear more or want to hear the song again. And then eventually you've heard it and you feel satisfied with it. And that kicks in a whole nother set of neurochemistry and you're satisfied, you're happy. It makes you feel good. Uh, sometimes that goes wrong though, of course. Um, so one idea about earworms is that you, you hear something, you like it, and then you want to hear it and then you like it some more and then you want to hear it some more and you like it some more and it just keeps on going and going. You can't get it out of your head. By the way, this is also a, an underlying mechanism for addiction. And mm. so there's been a lot of questions about whether you can actually become addicted to music um, <laughs> to the point where ah. it's affecting your life negatively. And I, there's some debate about that, but the pathways are pretty much the same. Wow. So those are the eight movements. Is there anything else that you, either one of you just has in your mind, like, oh, I wish we would have talked about that with one of those movements before we kind of wrap things up. Anything else that we didn't quite get to that you want to point out? I think we covered well these various topics. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really fun, fun little things in the in each chapter. Um, obviously, we can't go into them all in, in this interview today. But um, I did love the fact that our, our editors actually asked us to go back and better cover uh, one feature of the human mind, which is how we deal with curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes up again, again, and again, in the book, we went back and, and really looked at that more seriously. And we use a Beethoven as an example of how curiosity drives creativity. And if you think about his piano sonatas, uh, how they changed, he actually wrote in letters to to friends that he was curious about going in different directions, and that was driving him to really change the way he he played. And uh, curiosity also drives your like of music. You hear something that you've not heard before, uh, and it makes you curious about hearing more, and then you you do listen more. And it's it's actually what drives people on modern platforms like Spotify to listen to more music. They're curious about something new and they want to hear more. Um, and mm. that's, that's something that drives our liking of music. It also drives our desire to make new kinds of music. Uh, and it also des- drives our ability to practice because we're curious about how, mm. how to best play something or how to change a chord from one pattern to another, for example. So there's lots of little things like that in the book that I thought was really fun to write just because I learned so much in doing the background research for each chapter. I recently uh, was teaching a the first piano lesson to a 60-year-old person. And after a successful first lesson, which is tough, all the things you have to do, like Portia, to play one note, uh, she was thumbing through the more of the book and saw these things called sharps and flats. And she says, oh, I get petrified. They really give a fear to me. And uh, because we've, uh, the, we've written the book, the word... I said, well, might you look at that as curiosity? (laughs) (laughs) Curious to learn what these little buggers are instead of having fear about them. So, yeah, curiosity was. (laughs) That's a powerful reframing. Yeah. Uh (laughs) Love that. 
Well, there are two quotes from your book that I just want to read because they do such a great job of just kind of summarizing the content of the book and some of the benefits. One of the quotes is, by the end of this journey, you will better understand how human beings create, practice, perform, and listen to music. You will also gain insights into how the neuroscience underlying these activities can help you appreciate the origins of your own creativity, inspire approaches to teaching and learning, and reveal whole new ways to appreciate the music and other art around you. Mm. So that was one quote that I just loved. I work a lot in my day job with university faculty, music faculty members, and I definitely want to share this book and this episode with them because I just feel like there's so so much um, treasure to mine in Mm. these pages. The other quote that I want to read from your book is, We hope this book helps you consider how challenging your brain to learn something new that involves movement, sensation, and cognition can lead to remarkable changes, not only in the structure of your brain, but also in who you are as a human being. And that quote just kind of speaks to the fact that this book is for anyone, anyone who wants to learn more, understand more about music, how they experience music, how they relate to music, and how to become a lifelong learner, how to be curious, how to understand creativity. So that's, um, those are the two quotes that I just kind of want to leave with listeners to kind of whet their appetite a little bit more for this book. I ask all of my guests to close out our conversation with a musical ending, uh, Coda, by sharing a song or story about a moment that music enhanced your life. Do one of you have a song or story that you can share with us today in closing? Well, so uh, one of the things I, I do, I write a lot of grants and sometimes I get writer's block and I'll just go and sit down at the piano and play a little jazz or a little blues or, or make up something in some classical genre. And so for me, that's, it's almost like therapy. Uh, and once I do that, I can step away and, and, and feel like I can get back to the topic at hand. And so that's one of the things I love to do is just sit down and mm-hmm. play a little blues at the piano. And listeners are going to hear a short video clip, the audio from it. And is that what you are doing in this clip? Yes, that's exactly it. That, that was actually that in that clip, I was actually being taped for a, a, a television interview. Of, I think it was about, you know, the power of creativity in music. But, uh, hmm. but yeah, that's exactly what I was doing at that moment. That's the kind of thing I'll just sit down and improvise. a little clip of Larry's improvising. You can watch a video in the show notes for more on his improvising. Thank you so much to Dennis and Larry for joining us today and for putting this incredible book out into the world. I highly recommend it, whether you're a music professional, an educator considering this as a textbook to add to your curriculum, or a music enthusiast. As always, there are lots of links in the show notes, including a link to the book, 
Every Brain Needs Music, The Neuroscience of Making and Listening to Music. The show notes also include a transcript of this episode and a list of related episodes you may enjoy, including the episode we mentioned in the conversation, It Hurts So Good, When and Why is Sad Music Enjoyed, an episode called Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning, and an episode on mental skills for stress reduction and peak performance. You'll find today's show notes at mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast. This is episode 166. All Enhanced Life with Music episodes are evergreen, so be sure to check out the back catalog for more ways that music can make your life better. As always, you can connect with me on email, mindy at mpetersonmusic.com, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Until next time, may your life be enhanced with music.